Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. True biblical preaching is Christ-filled preaching. It's an oxymoron to think of a sermon absent of Christ, just like it's an oxymoron to think of a church absent of Christ. So may the Lord hear and answer by his grace that prayer that we would see more of Christ. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter two. Revelation two, we have the privilege returning this morning to the word to answer more of our questions about revival in the church. I gave you several caveats or disclaimers last week as we gathered. I I give those to you again, reminding you that this will not feel like a normal sermon, though I trust it's expositional, rooted in truth and useful for our exhortation. It's not normal. We're not just gonna sit on and park in one text. But I also hope that it's useful and helpful to you as we think with clarity about revival. I want to draw to a close our consideration of revival from Scripture uh, today and next week. So this week I want to answer the question, what are the means and the results of revival? So if God is doing this work, to revive his church, how is he doing that? What, what are his prescribed methods to bring revival and spiritual awakening? And if he does that and when he does that, what does it look like? How would we know that it's been God's work to do that? And I think these are really important questions. Probably need more time than we're gonna give them this morning, but how you answer that really determines then how you seek revival and whether or not you should seek revival and what it would look like to go after God's work through revival. I told you a few weeks ago as we considered revival that all these questions we have about revival, kind of as you answer one, you you intersect and answer them all together. Uh, So as you answer the, the need for revival, you kind of end up answering, well, what would revival be and what would it look like? But I wanna kind of come back to those ideas and and make it more clear. And so I think the questions that remain are the, the next two for the next two sermons, next two Sundays, what are the means and results of revival? We saw from Acts 2 last Sunday that revival is an extra measure of the Holy Spirit of God's work by which he brings extraordinary results. We saw that revival is not something that, that we as men can guarantee through our own methods, our own moving of the chess pieces on the board of church. And checkmate God and make him bring revival. That's not what revival is. We saw both in scripture and in church history that God works at times through an extra measure of his spirit, doing the exact same things the spirit always does, but with more power and more more effect upon more people. As we walked through that, we countered the teachings of Charles Finney, who said that the Holy Spirit is placed at the disposal of the Christian that you have at your disposal the spirit by which you can use him to bring about an elevated state of the Christian life, this state of revival. We saw from Scripture that the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He's not trapped by our will and our purposes, but rather moves according to his own will and his own purposes for his own ends. He's not captive to, to know the human will and then respond, but rather he works in perfect harmony with the will of the Father and the will of the Son to carry out foreordained 
plans. We also saw that there is an extra measure of the Spirit in a, a season of revival that's in keeping with his normal work. In other words, what he normally does, he at times does something more of that same thing. So revival is not a, a different work of the Spirit. Revival is more of the work of the Spirit in line with what he normally does. And this is under the sovereign lordship of the God of heaven. This happens when he chooses and to what extent he foreordains. And so we turn again to the scriptures to see how it is that God said he would do this. And then when he does this, what are the results of that work? I want to start this morning in the book of Revelation because that's where we started the series. And so we kind of draw it to a close, coming back to this section of scripture. We'll spend just a few minutes here and then we'll jump back to the book of Acts and, and see how this really does take place in the history book of the New Testament. These are familiar texts to you, but I hope to, to point out new landmarks to your spiritual sight, that you'd look at them in a, in a new way with, with fresh insight and fresh impact upon your soul. So the question again, when God does this reviving work, what does he use to make it happen? And what are the results when it is accomplished? Revelation two and three, we have the, the words of our Lord to the seven churches of Asia Minor, it comes to those churches through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Christ is depicted at the end of chapter 1. You remember as the, the sovereign Lord in the midst of the churches. He's given this description by John of, of dressed in the, the kingly authority that is his alone. And he's in the midst of the churches and he has eyes that are like a flame of fire. And he's looking at the churches. And, and from that posture of sovereign authority over his church and perfect sight within his church, he writes to his church. And he tells them, this is what's true about you. This might be what you think is true about you. This might be what others think is true about you. But listen, this, I, the Lord of the church, am telling you, is what's actually true about you. We saw that five of the seven churches were in need of revival. The church in Ephesus was cold in her love for the Lord. She needed to be revived to her former works. The church in Pergamum was, was compromised. She had some in her midst who were holding to false teaching. The church in Thyatira was complacent. They, they let a particular false teacher in their midst have her way and have her influence, and, and they played fast and loose with their responsibility to tether themselves to the truth. The church in Sardis was self-confident. She she thought that she could do this in her own strength. She was not dependent upon the Spirit's power. She thought she was alive. She had all the marks of spiritual life, but Jesus says, actually, you're dead because you don't have the life of the Spirit of God in you. And then in Laodicea, we saw the, the worst of all situations in which Christ wasn't even in the church. He was outside of the church and was knocking at the door to be let in. They thought they were spiritually healthy and spiritually rich and spiritually well supplied. And Jesus says, you're poor and blind and naked. But he gives them a way out. He says, come buy from me without cost the salve to heal your spiritual eyes. Come get from me all the riches without cost that you need for spiritual life. So how is it that Jesus calls the church in Revelation 2 and 3 to be revived? So there's a need, right? They're in desperate straits. 
What does he say to them? What does he do to them? How did he, how did he bring it about? What are the first words of, of verse one of chapter two in Revelation two? To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. How is it that Jesus is gonna bring about revival to his church? Well, he's going to write to them his very words. The first means of revival is spirit-empowered bringing of the words of Christ to the church of Christ. This word is to come to the messengers of each church. The, the messengers of each church, I believe, are the representative, the human representative in the church. I think it, it represents the, the leadership team, the elders called to shepherd the flock in each location. What's their role? Their role is to be the under-shepherds of Christ, to to carry out his authority in the body in line with his will. To make sure the church knows the words of Christ and operates under the authority of Christ. That's their role. And so Jesus says, I'm giving my word to them who will give it to you. And through that chain of communication, the insinuation and, and the clear promise is the church can be revived. Oh, church and Laodicea, you don't have to be spiritually dead anymore. Christ doesn't have to be outside of your church. He can come in and you can have communion with him. And he can be the fullness of life to you. There's a, a pathway to be revived and it is through the words of Christ. So I ask again, when Jesus Christ wants to revive his church, what does he do? And you're like, well, it's obvious you've said it 10 times, but listen, you must get this right. Does he tell them to, to gather together in some place and sing robustly some nice sounding music and to pray fervently and to just kind of generally wait for the, the spirit to come upon them in a unique way so as to revive them? Is that what Jesus does when he wants to work a work of revival in his church? Or does he just spiritually zap them with a, a fresh voltage of spiritual energy, some thunderbolt from a spiritual cloud hanging over the church and zaps them into, into life and energy again and, and gets them kicking again? No, beloved, what does he do? It's, it's obvious, but you must see it. What does he do? He speaks to them. He gives them his word. He clearly and compassionately tells them the truth. And he does that through the ministry of his Holy Spirit and through the human messengers within each church. And he tells each church, this is who you really are and this is what's really wrong and this is how you really need to pursue making it right. This is God's primary means of God's reviving work. It is through spirit-empowered preaching of the word of God. This is how the Spirit of God works in the church. Jesus said that in John 16. It's proven in Acts, as I'll show you in a minute. It's come back to in the book of Revelation. When the church has left the word of God, what does Jesus do? Reminds them through his word and says, you need to return and repent. They need more of Christ. Notice then that there's also a clear response in each of these five letters that the church is to have. And I know I'm not reading through all of this, but you can just see the response that's laid out for them. Just look right away in Ephesus. What does Jesus say through his words to the church? You've left your first love. That's the problem. 
sorry that happened, hope it turns out okay. Is that what Jesus says? See you in heaven. No, he says, listen, you, you have a way out of this. Remember, remember, repent, return to the works you did at first. There's a pathway for revival given to them through the words of the Lord of the church. And then there is, with that call to action, this human responsibility. So for revival to come to Ephesus, they they had to do this. They they had to repent. They had to remember. They had to return. The list goes on as you read the rest of the letters. They had to hold fast. They had to do what Christ tells them to do. They had to come to Christ for all that they spiritually needed in the church in Laodicea. So the pathway to a revived spiritual state is plainly laid out for them through the words of Christ. And it calls them to action. There's human responsibility and sovereign authority here. And the Lord's kindness meets them in their need and gives them a way forward. And they have to respond with humble and contrite and obedient faith. And at this point, they, they can receive or hinder the work of the Spirit, can't they? They can humble themselves under the word of Christ and receive the further work of God as given to them here, or they can, they can hinder his work. They can grieve his spirit by continuing on in the flesh, refusing to heed and hear his word and follow his way. So revival then has a divine and a human side to it, wouldn't you say? The Lord must confront and convict and empower his bride by his grace to be revived, to be spiritually awakened, but the church must also hear and heed Return and repent. There's tremendous mystery, as you know, to this joining of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we're not going to crack this nut or solve this puzzle in the next two minutes. But know that in God's work, this work of reviving is his work. He must do it. And you must respond. You must repent. You must return You must hold fast. You must do what he says. You must run to Christ. And if you do, it is proof of the grace of God at work in you, drawing you to Christ, returning you to him. The sin which grieves God's spirit, which begs for God's reviving work, is our sin entirely. It's our own responsibility, not God's. The power to be changed and revived is entirely God's. It's of his grace and by his mercy and given through his spirit by his word. So much so that if ever you are revived, you can claim no credit. You can't say, well, I repented, therefore I was revived. No, you can say, the grace of God accosted me. The mercy of God gripped me, broke me, and revived me. And it is all God's work and all God's praise. So the call of Christ as church in Revelation 2 to 3 is not a call to pull themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps and get themselves together. This is not Jesus slapping them in the face saying, come on, get it together, people. Figure this stuff out. Rather, it's a a call to repent of of self-dependent effort and self-love and self-oriented wisdom and to run instead to Christ, to hear him and to obey him, to seek him, and to love him. It's a call to reform and revive. 
that God must do in us. Notice while we're here in Revelation 2 to 3 that there's a, a result of this revival, and, and that result is given at the end of each letter. Jesus says, if you remember and return and repent, then you'll be the ones who conquer. And it's at the end of every of the seven letters, even the one to Laodicea. There's a promise, even in that darkness of a glorious light, a good ending to a terrible beginning. He says, listen, if you will heed and listen and repent, you will be conquerors. You will overcome these challenges through your union with me, the Lord Jesus. And notice what that promised result of this conquering is. Actually, notice first what it isn't. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, if you'll do these things and if you'll pull these spiritual levers and push these spiritual buttons, then, then I'll come down in an amazing way and I will, through you, make a spectacle of spiritual work for all the world to see. That's not promised here. That's not the guaranteed result. The guaranteed result is actually quite normal, glorious, but quite common to all who are in Christ. In fact, all who are in Christ receive this promise, and that is the full reward of eternal life and the eternal glories that come with being a conqueror through our Lord. You see, the results of revive, of a revived church at its most basic level is a saved church, a church that has the guarantee of glory in heaven with Christ. I want to take you now back to the book of Acts. I want to prove this to you, so turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to move quickly through this book, doing injustice to what these texts deserve. But as we walk through the book of Acts, we see the historical account of the work of the Spirit of God through the apostles to do a mighty work. So much so that you remember how the world described these apostles. They said, they, they said that through these men, the world has been turned upside down. So the world has taken notice by the end of the book of Acts that how God has worked through these men. And these big works of God in the book of Acts, the result of that, as we see, is the church built throughout the first century world. And what we see in God's work in these places is repeated then throughout church history. So where there's genuine revival in and through the church, this is what it looks like. And, and you have to take my word for that because I can't prove that to you this morning. But read the history books. Read about the, the Great Awakening. Read about the Protestant Reformation. Read about the Welch Revival of the early 1900s. It was always this way. It's the way we see it happen in the book of Acts. It's God sending an extra measure of his spirit to do an extraordinary work through his prescribed means. In Acts 2, as we worked through that last week, we saw... Peter proclaimed the truth of God. I want you to notice as we work through the book of Acts that, that what we see in the first time is what we see every time. And I don't think that's just because that's what I want to see. I think you'll see that that's true every time. God's means are the same in each instance and the results are the same in each instance. Yes, there's flavors of difference in the description, but they're generally the same each time. So what is his consistent method? How does he produce this mighty Work And I want you to know I'm asking those questions pastorally. I'm not asking those questions scholarly. As though I'm trying to prove to you from a lecture from a pulpit that, you know, this is what's true about this. You need to know this. I'm asking these questions pastorally because your minds and hearts have been 
been pushed upon with all kinds of thoughts about revival over the last six weeks, eight weeks, two months, whatever. I guess eight weeks and two months are the same thing, aren't they? But you've been hearing this over and over again. You need to know how to think about this stuff. And you need to know that from Scripture, not from what any man might tell you to think. So what should you expect if God ever would do this kind of work among us, and and may he do it? In Acts 2, we saw the Spirit of God come upon the apostles in this unique outpouring of his presence and power. And what was the result? You remember? They spoke the truth about Christ. They, in verse 11, they are described as speaking the great works of God. We know what those great works of God that they were talking about because Peter goes on to describe it. And he, he talks about Jesus. He gives a, a clear proclamation about Christ. And we worked through that last week. What was the result of that proclamation of Christ. Well, verse 37, there's a, a deep conviction of heart in those who were listening, and they cried out and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They heard from Peter, understood that this Jesus of Nazareth that they had thought was a blasphemer, a liar, a breaker of the law, a threat to Rome, and a threat to Jerusalem that they had yelled out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They now see and understand that that Jesus is not who they thought he was. That he is in fact and indeed the real Messiah sent from God himself. That he is the son of God in human flesh. That he is no longer dead but overcame sin and death and hell, rose from the grave on the third day, ascended to the Father's right hand, and is soon returning to judge the living and the dead. Those 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost are captured with that reality. Convicted that that is true. And what does Peter say to them? What are they to do? He says, repent, believe, show your belief through baptism. And God does a mighty work. 3,000 souls were saved that day. And I ask you again, what were the means? What were the instruments? How did God make this happen? How did he bring about this great work? Well, it was his spirit-filled, spirit-empowered messengers. Powerfully doing what? Leading endless services of, of music and sharing? No, preaching the truth about Christ. These 3,000 souls were convinced through spirit-empowered preaching. And they were moved by God's grace to faith. And they were gloriously born again. Beloved, this is how great in-gatherings into the people of God, into the church, always happen. God uniquely empowers his messengers to preach with authority the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they preach, the Spirit moves in the hearts and the minds of the listeners. And they are convinced and convicted, cut to the heart. They see Christ really and truly for the first time. They see themselves rightly and truly for the first time. And they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are gloriously saved. This is exactly what was seen in Jesus himself, wasn't it, in his ministry? How was his preaching described? He taught as one with authority. Why did he have authority? Because the Holy Spirit himself was upon him. He captured crowds 
with his teaching and preaching with authority because the Holy Spirit filled him, empowered him, and spoke through him. And everyone who follows in the Lord Jesus' footsteps and stands before anyone and proclaims the message of the gospel must do so in a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered way if God's going to use them to bring about a reviving work. So it is the responsibility of every preacher who's ever stood for the sake of Christ before the church of Christ to labor, to be spirit-filled and spirit-empowered as he labors in the word, in season and out of season. But his preaching, his effort, his study, his skill, his influence, nothing of that is what brings the guarantee of revival. Please understand that. The means of revival is no one man, no one skilled messenger, no one particular moment It is the Holy Spirit of God moving as he so ordains through spirit-filled men to proclaim with authority the truth of the gospel. And what's the result? What's the result? The word is preached, these spirit-empowered men proclaim Christ and great work is done. What happens next? 3,000 souls are added on the day of Pentecost as the dust settles day two, the next day. What happens next? Again, I ask you maybe better question is what didn't happen? Notice they didn't call everyone together for unending meetings marked, as I mentioned before, by singing emotional expressions of devotion, worship for the next three, four weeks. Look what happens. Look at the extraordinary work of the Spirit of God and what it produces. Verses 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together had and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, Those who were being saved. Were their lives different from verse 36 to verse 42? Radically different. But this radical difference has a very normal look. They repented of their rebellion against the Son of God in the flesh. They were gloriously saved and added to the church. And and what did that look like? It looked like the church being built and being compelled in the love of Christ. These new converts were ingratiated into the the life and the worship and the, the fellowship of the church. And it was marked in these verses by devotion to the word and devotion to prayer and devotion to the Lord's Supper, devotion to fellowship around the word and unusual expressions of love for one another, gladness and joy and worship of God, fear and awe of God, a missionary spirit to reach others, and many more were added to the church. Do you see how if God's going to do an extraordinary work through spirit-filled men proclaiming the gospel, and he's going to bring in a, a great in-gathering of souls, 
what's going to be the result of that? If it's God's work, if the Spirit did it, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like the church being added to in these ways. These converts to Christ are going to prove their new life through their new behavior. Now I want you to turn to Acts 4 real quick. Flip over to Acts 4. In this chapter, Peter and John were arrested because they were teaching in the temple after they had been threatened with their lives and told not to. They went back and did it anyways. They're arrested in verse 21. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin gather them and threaten them. When they had further threatened them, verse 21, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Jump down to verse 23. They were released then. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they go on to pray and ask the Lord for boldness. So they threatened for the preaching of the gospel. These spirit-filled men go and preach the gospel. Get arrested for preaching the gospel, get released and go back to the church. They report to the church the threats that were levied against them for preaching the gospel. And notice what they prayed about. They praised God for his sovereignty. They marveled at the world's opposition, especially the crucifixion of Jesus. How could they do that? And then they prayed and asked God for ongoing boldness, that they would do the thing they know God wanted them to do, which was to be witnesses for the resurrected Jesus. Numbers 31, look at that. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So there's this fresh, unique, abundant outpouring of the Spirit of God where they sense anew and afresh his presence and his power. And what's the result? They continued with boldness to speak the word of God. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What are the results of this revival, this extraordinary work of God through the apostles? Well, there's tremendous unity. There's amazing selflessness among them. And the apostles continue proclaiming the resurrected Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You see a pattern, right? This moves forward into chapter five as as they share, they sell property and possessions to share with each other. Barnabas is named at the end of four as a uniquely uh, gifted one in giving. Ananias and Sapphira arise in chapter five and and they seek to to, uh, capitalize on this moment in church history and church life and make a name for themselves by giving a big amount of a property and claiming they had given the full amount and they lie to the apostles and they lie to the Holy Spirit and they are struck dead immediately. And what is the result of that? In verses 11 to 14, there's great fear upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders, verse 12, were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. More than ever? 
That's a superlative statement in Acts that ought to catch your attention more than ever. This is a a unique, extraordinary, never-before-seen work of the Lord in the church. More than ever, they are added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Do you see how this is working out in the church? The church enjoys unity and selfless love. Sin rises among them. Somebody tries to capitalize on the moment and make a name for themselves. God deals severely because it's a a pivotal time in the life of the church. He deals severely with them and, and they are all revived and awakened to the seriousness of God, his wrath, and they fear him. And in fearing him, grace comes upon them all the more. The people of the area of Jerusalem are fearful of God And God, in great grace, uses the apostles to continue preaching. And they are gathered together, proclaim the truth, and more than ever, believers are gathered and added. They're facing opposition. They're facing internal difficulty. And yet God's uniquely blessing their ministry by his power and adds more and more to their body. Then in Acts 6, just over maybe further down on your page, the early church is humming along. Things are going great. God's greatly blessing them, so much so that they have too many people to care for. A contention arises in the body, and in this beginning of the chapter, there's a problem with the the Greek-speaking Jews who are believers. Their widows aren't getting cared for like the the Jewish uh, widows are. And so they raise the issue with the apostles. Verse one, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So will this threaten the growth of the church? Will this internal difficulty bring to an end this amazing spiritual awakening happening in Jerusalem? Verse two, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice that the apostles are agreeing with the issue, but adamant that they are not the ones who need to meet the need of the issue. Why? Because it would require them to to give up a priority that they knew they had from Christ himself, which was as shepherds of the church to pray and to preach. And so they said to the church, you're going to help us solve this problem. We need you to appoint seven men who have a good reputation and who are what? Full of the Holy Spirit. And appoint them to this task and we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The early church is pleased with that solution. They appoint seven men. Look at verse seven. What's the result of this? The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What's the result of this? And what do we mean by this, to be clear? Well, the church had a logistics problem. And so the logistics problem forced them to sort out their priorities, the church. As they sorted out their priorities and addressed the problem, they were led by the Spirit to a biblically wise solution that upheld God's design and God's prescribed roles for different leaders in the church. And as the church solved this problem, 
through a spirit-led solution. And as God's apostles were upholding the church in prayer and the ministry of the word and the widow's needs were being met, the church joyfully following the apostles' lead, what happened? What was the result of that? Well, the word of God increased, Luke says. What does that mean? Well, it means that the word of God increased in the people. They wanted more. They longed for more of the word, and, and that word in them had greater effect. Not only that, but the number of disciples multiplied. We're not just adding anymore, we're multiplying. We're exponentially increasing the number of disciples. And Luke's careful to let you know that this is not just normal common folk. This is, this is the influential crowd, the priests of the day are now seeing the truth about Jesus. I, I want to be in Acts 6, verse 7, and experience that revival. That's an amazing outpouring of the extraordinary work of the Spirit of God. And what does God use? How did he do this? This is important. How did he do this? He used a healthy church, not a perfect church. A church that actually had problems that needed to address, but who addressed it in a spirit-led way, a biblically wise way, with a membership who joyfully submitted to the leaders God had placed there and who loved the word and the word multiplied in them and God used them to increase the word of God to others around them and to multiply the disciples and those who became obedient to the faith. What was it that was at the center of this revival? What's the key in Acts 6 to this happening? Isn't it the apostles maintaining their priorities to the prayer and the ministry of the word? In other words, this is in line with Jesus' promise in, in Matthew 16, 18 to build his church. That through the preaching of the word, he would build his church. He didn't promise to build a movement or to build a college or to build an evangelistic crusade. He promised to build the church. And that's exactly what happens in Acts 6. The church, in a healthy way, is used by God to multiply disciples. The result is similar to what we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And I would ask you, is it similar to what we see in the revivals that have hit the news in recent days? I wonder, is the takeaway from Asbury that the word of God multiplied and, or uh, increased and the number of disciples multiplied? I've not personally heard that report coming from that place, but this, these are the chief marks of God's work in a true revival. When he determines to send an extra measure of his spirit to do an extra work, this is the result. I'll turn over to Acts 11. We'll finish here this morning quickly. Acts chapter 11. Just like in Acts Six, we see God reviving and spiritually awakening a people for his glory. Between Acts 6 and Acts 11, we're told of the arrest and martyrdom of Stephen, who was one of the seven appointed in Acts 6. That incites an outbreak of violent persecution against the church by the Jews, spearheaded by a man you know as the name of Saul of Tarsus. Because of his persecution, the, the believers are uh, scattered through the then known world and they in their scattering bring the gospel with them and so the gospel is spread because of persecuting the church 
And they take the gospel all around the world. And in chapter 10 in particular, Peter is seeing that God is expanding his work from Jews to Gentiles. He's given a vision and an experience in the house of Cornelius where he sees God bring the grace of salvation to a Gentile household. And through this, this mostly Jewish church in the early part of Acts realizes that this is a work that is for the whole world, for all nations. And so it expands from them and and goes beyond them. And so a a group of believing Jews ends up in Antioch, far north of Jerusalem. And here's what happened, verse 19, Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the Christians, excuse me, the disciples were first called Christians. Go back and track what's happening here. Persecution scatters the church from Jerusalem. They go to a place like Antioch. They take the gospel. They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel to Jews. And then they expand and preach the gospel to Greek-speaking Jews. As they do this, God uses them to bring a great number into the faith. They believe and turn to the Lord. Did you notice how these messengers of the gospel are described? The text says the hand of the Lord was on them. That's what I mean when I say spirit-filled, spirit-empowered messengers. The hand of the Lord was upon them, and they went and proclaimed the message of the Lord. Verses 22 to 26, that report comes of God's expansion into Gentile territory, comes back to the leaders in Jerusalem. And so they they send one of their best and their brightest to go check it out, Barnabas. He's described in the text again as a good man with a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. He arrives on the scene in Antioch and what does he see? What does the text tell you he saw? He saw these amazing gatherings where he was drawn in by their devotion and their expressions of worship. He saw this amazing work of of the world being awed by what was happening. No, he, he saw the grace of God. Namely, he saw unbelievers made believers by the grace of God. He saw them added to the church. And he was glad at this work. So what does he do? He He exhorts them. What do he tell them to do? Hey, listen, we gotta capitalize on this. We're gonna gonna start Barnabas Ministries. And this is gonna be the launch pad. We're gonna start some some rallies and and we're gonna do some amazing things. God's gonna use us in amazing ways as we we launch this ministry, Barnabas Ministries, and and we're gonna have amazing amounts of people all over the world come and and hear the gospel. That's what he does? Draw together an amazing band, find a killer speaker, entertaining, engaging, and truthful. That's not what he does. What does he do? 
he exhorts them to be steadfast and faithful. He says, listen, stick to the stuff. This is happening among you, not because of you, but because of the gospel. Don't abandon the gospel. This is happening because the hand of the Lord is upon you. Stick with the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in his work. Holy and fully devote yourself to him. Give yourself to the main things, just like they did in Acts 2, 42 to 47. And what was the result? What was the result of this? A great movement of God upon a great many people. And how were they affected? Traveling miles on end to come gather under some portal of heaven that's opened up in which the Spirit of God descends in a unique way on this unique building and this unique time and this unique group of people and emotionally gripping displays of public work. Is that what they did? No. I'm being somewhat sarcastic to get your attention about this. What does the scripture say happens when the Spirit of God falls upon a people? When he comes and empowers uniquely his servants for an extraordinary work. Faithful steadfastness of the church. Added to the church, to the assembly. Added to the Lord. Convinced of their wrong beliefs about Jesus and now walking in humble submission to him. Then look at what Barnabas does. This great work of the Lord. He doesn't market it. He doesn't trademark it. Put it online and travel all over the then known world with this amazing work of God. No, what he does is he goes and gets Saul, Paul, brings him back so that he can have help in doing what? Teaching church. You see, if God's going to revive a people and spiritually awaken new disciples, they need taught. They need grounded in the faith. They need added to the church in meaningful ways. And so for a whole year, the text says, they they met with the church and with a, a great many people. Listen, that sounds pretty normal to me. Pretty common, pretty average, pretty ordinary, but you're being told that really the, the highest life of the Christian is, is really not normal at all. It's a, an increased sense of emotional euphoria and, and of worship of God, and, and you're not really living in Christ until you experience that. Beloved, in Acts, that, that's not the reviving work of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God falls upon his people through his messengers by his word, he builds his church, and he does amazing stuff. He makes them selfless where they once were selfish. He makes them take their treasure and their possessions and sell them and bless other people with them. He makes them missionary-minded. He sends them all over the world to take the gospel to the least and the lost. He makes them devoted to prayer in a way they never were before. He makes them devoted to the word of God in ways they wouldn't be able to describe other than saying, God's spirit did this in me. And this happens again and again and again in the book of Acts. We can go to chapter 13 and read of how he did it in another town called Antioch. We can turn to chapter 14 and read about how he did it in Iconium. We can turn to chapter 19 and see how the spirit comes and the results that he does in Ephesus. What you're going to see over and over and over again in Acts and in church history is that this is how God works. He comes upon people by his spirit through spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, 
He awakens their souls, gives them life and faith, and they are filled with Christ. These revivals are marked by an understanding of the word that people didn't have before and a love for Christ that they did not have before. Which is exactly what Paul says in Romans 5 would happen when the Spirit comes upon us. He pours out the love of God in our hearts. So, beloved, what is the means? What are the means and the results of revival? Well, the means are God's prescribed means, the way He always works through His Spirit, by His Word coming upon souls, powerfully worked by His Spirit to bring eternal change. What are the results? Glorious and very normal. And adding to the church a love for the word, an increase in love for God and for one another, opened of their hearts to a multiplying of the word in them and through them in a way they had never known before, an awareness and knowledge of Christ that they had never seen before. And this happens again and again and again. Thomas Charles, a pastor in Wales in the late 1700s, described this outpouring of God that he experienced in his church family. He says, the coming of the Lord amongst us has been with such majesty, glory, and irresistible power that even his avowed enemies would be glad to hide themselves somewhere. It is an easy and delightful thing to preach the glorious gospel here in these days. Divine truths have their own infinite weight and importance in the minds of the people. Beams of divine light together with irresistible energy accompany every truth delivered. It is delightful indeed to see how the stoutest heart bended and the hardest melted down with fire from God's altar. For the words come in power and in the Holy Ghost and is made mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Beloved, when the Spirit of God comes upon a church, This is the result. May he do so here whenever he would so choose to the glory of his name. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for how obvious things are in your truth. We pray that you would help us to evaluate all things according to what you have clearly said here in the scriptures. And we do pray that you would bring this reviving work to us You know where we need this most. You know what parts of our hearts are are cold towards you, what areas of our life are shut off to you by our own sinful choices. Father, would you mercifully bring your word to bear upon us by your spirit, awaken and enliven us for your glory and make us a beacon of that fire from heaven that other souls and hearts might come and be eternally changed. Father, would you do this work for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.